At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. In a culture growing in hostility, it's clear how far we are from what the kingdom of God should look like. As followers of Christ, it can be difficult to stand firm in what we are taught and what we believe in. It's easy to let idols slip into our lives without us even realizing it, especially when the world we live in puts people on a pedestal. In our new series, Daniel, The Clash of Cultures, we'll be looking at the life of Daniel and how even then Daniel had to navigate a culture who opposed God. We'll discover how we can put our trust in God regardless of our circumstances and how God is sovereign over all. Join us this new year as we study the life of Daniel and learn how to apply the truths inside this book to our own lives. Um, a couple weeks ago, uh, my family and I had a, a little bit of a free Saturday night, and I was uh, kind of exploring what to do. And as I was, I happened to notice that Imagine Novi was doing a re-showing of the movie Titanic. And I had never seen Titanic. And it was like one of those things, I was like, oh, that's kind of one of those theater movies. I'd love to go see that. So I pitched it to Alicia, and she was like, yeah, let's go. So uh, her and I and our youngest son, Xavier, set off to go watch a 30-year-old movie. Uh, but it was actually, it was quite, uh, quite enjoyable, and for the next three hours and 15 minutes, we availed ourselves of the love story of Jack and Rose amidst one of the great world disasters. Um, and there was, uh, thanks to my wife's guidance, there was some strategic popcorn getting for my son and I in the midst of the movie, but um, by and large, we really enjoyed it. And so, you know, it, as we were leaving uh, and, and just contemplating the movie and walking out to the car afterwards, I turned to... Uh, to my son Xavier, and I, I just, it, I was really struck by the movie, and I said, man, Xavier, that is just a really significant example of the hubris of man, and he kind of looked at me like, what, what does hubris mean? I was like, oh, well, like, it was just, but I was just struck in the moment of, like, it's such a historic example of the pride and arrogance that people can be prone towards, as you watch the movie, and James Cameron, I think, does a really good job of capturing so much of the history and the reality, one of the things that stands out was just this sense that people had about this ship, that it was unsinkable, that, that man had achieved something in terms of crossing the ocean on the most, at that time, the most incredible ocean liner anyone had ever seen, and they build it as unsinkable, that it was, it was literally just this incredible achievement. And because of that pride and arrogance, it caused them to do things they shouldn't have done and assume things they shouldn't have assumed. But there's this moment in the movie, which is actually rooted in his history, where one of the characters um, is kind of elaborating on the glory of the Titanic, and they say this line, they say, God himself could not sink this ship. Now, what's interesting is that's actually a true quote from one of the shipmen about the Titanic, and yet that ship didn't even make one trip all the way across the Atlantic Ocean, and it's one of the world's great disasters. And the story of the Titanic, whether in movies or literature, has stood kind of across time as a reminder of how pride and arrogance can lead at times to some of the most unspeakable disasters. And yet, I think for many of us, and I know even as I watch that, for many of us, when we encounter stories like that, our first kind of thought was like, well, that was then, and this is now. That, that was those people. We, we would never make that 
same mistake, or we wouldn't be prone to that sort of pride in our own lives. And then sometimes stories like that come along and shake us up a little bit to think, like, well, what about how I approach life? What about pride? What about human arrogance? Well, this morning, we're going to encounter another story of pride and hubris, and one that I think challenges us to consider our own spiritual reality in relation to God. We've been in this series for the last few weeks uh, called Daniel Clash of Cultures, where we've been studying through the first six chapters of the book of Daniel, which recounts the story of Daniel and his companions when they were exiled from and taken from their native Israel and brought to the empire and the capital of the empire of Babylon, where they were then sought to be indoctrinated by the kings and powers of their day. And the book of Daniel is written as they struggle to remain faithful in that culture to both inspire and inform God's people of how we can be faithful to the kingdom of God when we face the pressure of our own days in which we are called to live. And one of the themes that kind of reigns throughout the book of Daniel that we've encountered along the way but really comes to the forefront in what we explored last week is the reality that God is sovereign over the kingdoms of the world, that God is actually the one above and in charge of every kingdom and every king and every power and every authority, that he in fact is sovereign. Now, the word sovereign isn't a term we use very often unless you watch the crown and then they refer to the sovereign, right? But it's kind of one of those terms that's like, what, what is that? When we talk about someone being sovereign, what we mean is they're in charge, that they get the final say over whatever it is that they are over. So I don't have a lot of sovereignty in my life. Probably the only place I am sovereign over is my home, right? With Alicia and I together are sovereign over our home, which means I'm in charge. What I say goes. I, I get a set, and my wife and I, we get a set, the rules and order for our house. And that's what it means, right? I get the final say on how things go and what happens. And sometimes I have to remind my kids of that. Sometimes I have to have the fun conversation where I look at them and go, remember, you're not the parent here. I'm the one in charge. Or Alicia's the one in charge. Like, we're the ones who get the final say. That, that's what it means to be sovereign, to be in charge, to set the rules, to set the order, to have the final say. So when we say God is sovereign, and when Daniel brings it back, he continues to remind us that God is actually the one in charge over every other power, every other authority, every king, and every kingdom. We were just reminded of this last week in Daniel chapter 4 as it tells the story of Nebuchadnezzar's humility. And in that passage, we get these reminders of God being in charge, even over the most powerful king at that time who led the world's global empire in Babylon. But in the midst of that story, we get passages like this where Daniel looks at Nebuchadnezzar and he says that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. After Nebuchadnezzar actually experienced this, is humbled by God 
and begins to lift his eyes to heaven and return, he makes this statement about God towards the end of that passage, that all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he, God, does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Daniel 4 brings to the forefront what we've seen throughout Daniel, that God is sovereign. He's in charge. What he desires happens. He gets the final say. And every king and authority is ultimately accountable to him. Same for our lives as well. And Daniel 5 builds on that idea to ask the question of how we and I actually respond to the reality of God's sovereignty. What we see throughout Daniel 5 is that God is sovereign over everything, especially he's sovereign over ungodly kings and kingdoms. And Daniel 5 actually builds on the reality of Daniel 4 to cause us to ask the question, how will you and I respond to the reality of God's sovereignty? Daniel 5 sits uniquely in the structure of the book of Daniel. Daniel breaks down into kind of two ways that you can organize the book, just to help you understand a little bit of its connection here. So if you read through the book of Daniel, one of the first things you will notice is that it's organized between narrative accounts and prophetic accounts. The first six chapters are made up of court narratives, what happens in the courts of Babylon for these men. The last several chapters are actually apocalyptic prophecies, which is a Jewish way of writing about God has spoken over and to the nations. So Daniel organizes it that way, but Daniel also has a little bit of a structure underneath that in his writing that you cannot as easily see in in our translation, which is this. If you read through Daniel in its original language, what you would note is the first chapter of Daniel is written in Hebrew. But in chapter 2, the language switches to Aramaic, which would have been the common language in Babylon. Aramaic continues to chapter 7, and then in chapter 8, it switches back to Hebrew. So Daniel chapter 2 through 7 form a literary unit within the book. And what's even more interesting is if you look at that literary unit, unit what you realize is it's set up in stories that are, meant to pra- that are meant to pair to build towards a center point. So chapter 2 and chapter 7 are paired. They're visions of kingdoms. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar gets a dream about the kingdoms and the statue. In chapter 7, Daniel gets a vision about the kingdoms and the beasts that will come following Nebuchadnezzar's reign and the fall of Babylon. In chapter 3 and chapter 6, you have a pair of stories about what it means to be faithful in the midst of a kingdom that's opposed to God's way. You'll remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were faithful in view of the threat of the fiery furnace. Next week, we'll look out how Daniel was faithful even though there was the threat of the lion's den. Many of you might be familiar with that story. And these build down then to chapter 4 and 5 being a story, linked stories of two kings and how they respond to the sovereign rule of God. It's actually meant to force the reader to ask the question, look at these two kings and their response, how will you ultimately respond? And at the middle of those two stories is the verse that you heard Pastor Joel read. But I'll read it for you again, right? Just so you can pick up on the theme. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able 
too humble. See, we've looked last week, and Pastor Joel did a great job of unpacking the pride of Nebuchadnezzar, how he was humbled, but ultimately turned to God and found restoration. But in our story, the author now moves from the stories of Nebuchadnezzar to a story about another king, King Belshazzar. And King Belshazzar, in many ways, is a foil to Nebuchadnezzar. He's meant to ask the question and force us to ask the questions, what happens when we actually reject God's sovereignty? What happens when we turn from that and we don't humble ourselves before God? What does that look like? And what we're going to see today is three things in the story of Belshazzar that happen when we reject God's sovereign reign over, uh, over the world and over our lives. We'll see the first one in the first nine verses. So let me jump in and let's engage this story together. So starting in Chapter 5, verse 1, it says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousands. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. So Daniel, in his recounting of the history of Babylon and his stories in that relation, has fast-forwarded several decades from the reign of Nebuchadnezzar to a king named Belshazzar. After Nebuchadnezzar's reign, after he passed away, the throne was assumed by his son. His son reigned for a little while, but then was ultimately overthrown by his brother-in-law, who took power for a bit. When he passed away, he passed it on to his son, who was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, but his grandson only reigned for about a month, and then there was a plot against him. And that, in that plot against him, a man named, no, I never pronounce his right, name right, Nabonidus, is placed on the throne in Babylon. But Nabonidus has a problem. Nabonidus primarily worshipped the false moon god Sin, which I think is an appropriate name for a false god. But the capital city of Babylon, their favorite god that they loved to worship was Marduk. So when Nabonidus assumes power in the throne, it immediately puts him at odds with the guild of priests that worship Marduk in the capital city of Babylon. Out of this, Nabonidus makes the choice to flee and to move his reign from the capital city of Babylon to an oasis in the Arabian desert. And from that place, he rules. Now, it's a, I want you to know this because this is, there's a little interesting 
uh, history note here, which was for a long time, scholars used to look at the book of Daniel and the story of King Belshazzar and the end of the Babylonian Empire and say, well, look, this isn't historically accurate because we know from historical records that Nabonidus was the last ruler of Babylon before the Medes and the Persians overthrew and became the next world empire. Until about 75 years ago, when an archaeological dig found further records of the Babylonian history. And in those records, it notes about Nabonidus fleeing to this Arabian Peninsula. And when he fled, he appointed his son to remain in the capital city of Babylon and to rule in his stead. And you know what his son's name was? Belshazzar. So Belshazzar was actually the one reigning over the city at the time. And so they realized, oh, Daniel was actually right. He was the king. Now, one of the things you'll note throughout this text, and as you heard it read, is that Belshazzar is referred to as Nebuchadnezzar's son, and Nebuchadnezzar is referred to as his father. But I just told you that's not actually true, right? There was a series. Well, in those days, the equation of familial language between those who sit in power was actually a common practice. The writer is using that because he's strategically wanting you to draw a link between the one who sits on the throne of Babylon now, Belshazzar, with the one who previously had sat on the throne, Nebuchadnezzar, because he's linking the story. He's drawing them together to see your contrast. And at the beginning of the story, King Belshazzar, who's in charge, throws a massive feast. But this is not any ordinary feast. So if you just think like, oh, he had a nice dinner party and invited a few people. This is actually a worship festival. So in those days, part of the way that you would worship the gods is they would go and they would sacrifice a lot of food to the gods, meats and fruits and veggies and breads and all of this stuff, because they believed that the gods actually ate physically the fruit. And so once the gods had their fill of the food, they would take all the food that they sacrifice it and they would bring it to the king's court. And then the king would ultimately throw a feast out of those sacrifices and worshiped to invite people in to dine on the food. And part of the reason they did that was those meals were a symbol that the king was the divine representative of the gods. He was the one in power. He was to be worshipped alongside of them. He was the one who received their benevolence and distributed it to the kingdom. So this is, a, this is a propaganda meal as much as it is anything. And it's a worship feast. And so that's what's happening. Belshazzar is actually having a massive festival. And history records that right before the empire was overthrown, there was actually a big festival to the moon god Sin, which is likely what's happening here. But Belshazzar does something odd in this. He not only worships the moon god Sin, but he calls for the gold and silver vessels that were used in the temple of Jerusalem, which were, had been brought to Babylon when they, were, when they were carried there, to be brought to him so that they can drink wine out of them. Now, that might not see like that big a deal, like it might for you for a moment see like, well, that's kind of feels sacrilegious, but you know, but actually this is a highly symbolic act and an attack on the God of the Jews, Yahweh, because by doing this, Belshazzar is saying, I am the representative of Yahweh. I am him. I am this God. It's a direct challenge and blasphemy to the God of the Jews. In fact, this week I dug in a little bit into trying to understand some more of the history here, and I came across an article 
in the Journal of Near Eastern Studies on uh, ancient Babylonian feasts and how it relates to Daniel chapter 5. And the author, Jonathan Greer, draws a really important conclusion in that. He says this. He says, I suggest that the portrayal of Belshazzar as the king and the cup was intended to depict him not only as guilty of sacrilege, failing to honor the sacred nature of the temple vessels, but even more so as guilty of blasphemy, rivaling Yahweh himself, the ultimate banquet host. The banquet scene represents the epitome of royal hubris, a human king setting himself as the head of the cult and proclaiming some degree of divine status or affiliation in his divine body ratified in the right to sacred leftovers, more than a mere slight to the Lord of heaven. He's declaring his status in the representative of Yahweh. And in many ways, what we see at the beginning of this story in the story of Belshazzar is what happens when we reject God's rule and reign. The first thing that happens is we blaspheme the most high God. Now, blasphemy isn't something that we talk about necessarily. Maybe you're not familiar with that word. So let me give you a definition of what that means a little bit to help you understand what's happening here. Blasphemy is a verbal insult or defiant action that's performed intentionally and malevolently against God, revealing the offender's contempt for him. This isn't just thinking a little bit too much of yourself. This isn't pride that we've seen in Nebuchadnezzar. This is challenging God directly, challenging his power, his authority, his ways, claiming to be divine in this instance. And in many ways, it is the rejection of God's sovereignty and the assumption that I am the one who gets to define who God is and how we're called to live in the world. It's not only verbal, catch that, it's not only a verbal insult, but it's the defiant actions, the ones that go against, that say, I don't have to submit to your rule, your power, your authority. I am God. That's what Belshazzar's doing here. And the reality is, wherever we reject the sovereign rule and reign of God, our hearts are prone to move towards blasphemy, towards verbal insults, but more often than that, defiant actions that say, no, I get to determine. I, I was just reminded of the way in which this embodies ourself in our culture just yesterday. A buddy of mine had sent me um, in uh, an album of one of my favorite bands. He was like, this is a great live album. You need to check it out. And I was like, awesome. I was excited too. So yesterday I went to work out and I popped on the album and I was listening to the first song. And um, there was kind of a moment where the, the singer was ad-libbing. And uh, at one point, he, it just struck me. I literally had to stop my workout and change the track because it bothered me so much. But he just said, there is no God above you. God is within you. And I was like, Whoa. But then it struck me, that's the blasphemy of our world. There's no God above you. There's no one you have to give account to. There's no one you have to submit under or follow. You're God. You get to define your reality. You get to determine what right and wrong is. You declare for yourself and everyone else be darned, I am God, I make that decision, and I don't have to give account to anyone. So whether it's my biology or my sexuality or my morality whether it's the way I practice my business or life, how I speak, what I do, I get to determine that for myself because I am God. 
That's the blasphemy of our world. We might not throw festivals where we feast on the cups of the temple of God, but we desecrate his holiness all the time by putting ourselves in his position and saying, I don't need you. Whether it's in how I use my finances, whether it's in the way I work, whether it's the way I carry myself, the words I use, so often we in ourselves blaspheme God by putting ourselves in his position and saying, I don't give a darn about who you are, I'm going to define things for myself. I mean, isn't that what Adam and Eve did at the beginning? Wasn't the first temptation, you can be like God. You get to determine right and wrong. And every human from that point has fallen into the same trap. Belshazzar's not unique from us. He's what happens to all of us when we reject God's sovereignty, when we reject his rule and his in-chargeness over our world. Blasphemy is the ultimate expression of our human rebellion, which we are all guilty of. And the reality is, without the sanctifying work of God's spirits in our lives, we all move towards blasphemy. Some of words, but more often of actions. And Jesus warns us of this reality, of what it means to reject the rule and reign of God. He told those that claimed that his works and what he was doing and the kingdom that he was bringing was actually of the devil. To be careful. He says in Mark chapter 3, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. We looked at that a few months ago in our study through Mark, and it's a reminder. They were going around saying, you're not the Messiah. What you're doing is by the devil. Those in his culture were ultimately rejecting the revealed true king, the true Lord that God had sent. And Jesus says, your sins will be forgiven. Listen, there's forgiveness and grace and mercy. But what will not be is if you reject my rule, ultimately reaching its pinnacle in the revealed Messiah King Jesus. To reject him is to ultimately reject God's sovereign rule and reign. And so we see Belshazzar commit that when we reject his reign, we will move towards blasphemy. And as that happens, something disturbing begins to happen in the court. This hand appears and it begins to write on the plaster wall illuminated by the lamp. And as it does, Belshazzar actually starts to freak out. All right, verse 6 notes that then the king's color changed. Remember have the color drained from your face? And his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Now, that phrase, his limbs gave way, always struck me because I was like, that, that doesn't seem like terror to me. Like, I've never been scared and just like had my arm fall out of socket or like something. But like, the, the translators in English are actually trying to be polite here. The, the literal translation of that phrase is, his loins were loosened. Which means Belshazzar probably needs a diaper at this point. That's how scared he is. Right? We get that understanding. Like, he is terrified. And so he immediately calls the, the wise men, astrologers, all the wisdom of the world, and says, somebody help me understand what this hand is writing on the thing. But they can't do it. Right? He, he relies on a false wisdom. And the reality is, this is another aspect when we reject God's rule and reign. Right? When you don't fear God and trust his sovereignty, you will try to find something else to help you understand the challenges of life. But let me tell you now, they will always fail you. 
whether it's your horoscope or your crystals or your psychics or whatever two things you try to drive together that might help you try to explain the challenges of life, they always come up empty. And it's the same for Belshazzar. So the queen mother steps in and says, she seems to have some historical knowledge in verse 10 and essentially says, hey, there was a guy who interpreted dreams and these moments under the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. You should call him. And so they call for Daniel to come and to show the interpretation. And in verse 13, Daniel steps into the court and the king essentially says, listen, if you can interpret this dream, I'm going to clothe you in purple, I'm going to give you a golden chain, I'm going to elevate you to the third most powerful ruler in the kingdom, which is, again, why would it be the third most powerful? Oh, because his dad was the first most powerful ruler. He's the second, so he has the right to give the third. But look what Daniel responds in verse 17. Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. So it's interesting to note, if you've noted up to this point, Daniel has been very deferential to Nebuchadnezzar. He often gives him accolades and acknowledges him. But here it seems Daniel has no patience for Belshazzar. Because there's a difference between the pride of Nebuchadnezzar and the outright defiance and blasphemy that Belshazzar has shown. So then Daniel goes on to recount the story that we looked at last week. And I'm skipping a few of these verses quickly and giving summary just because we have a lot to look at, and I'm long-winded already. But he essentially recounts the reality that Nebuchadnezzar was humbled, that he was made to be a beast for seven years, and then ultimately restored when his heart was lifted up and his spirit turned toward God. So this is what he says. So catch 21. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was that of the wild donkeys. He was fed like grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew, here's that phrase again, the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he wills. So he's saying Nebuchadnezzar was humbled until he realized who the sovereign king was. But look what he says in 22. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And he recounts that he's brought these vessels in and used them in worship to false gods. What Daniel essentially says is, you should have known better. But instead of learning from the sins of what's taken place before, you've repeated them. And not only repeated them, you've even gone worse. You see, the reality is when we reject God's rule and reign, we move to a place in our lives where we repeat past sins, both of ourselves and often the generations that come before us. You've heard the phrase, the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree. Often that's referred to our personality, our looks in relation to our parents. But that phrase could just as aptly be used for the reality of the sin and struggle of our lives. Because we are prone oftentimes where we are unsubmitted to the kingdom of God and his ways and words to repeat the sins of previous generations and to fall into similar traps. And what's exemplified here is actually directly promised by God in his word. In the Ten Commandments, God commands Israel not to make any idols. 
And he says this in that, you shall not make, Exodus 24, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands who love me and keep my commandments. God makes it clear. Where you reject his reign, where you don't love and submit to his fatherly guiding, then there is a repent, a repeating of sin that carries in generation to generation. And I think for most of us in the room, if we were honest with ourselves, we would recognize that some of the things we struggle with in our life we carry in response to the reality of what came before us. I've been transparent with our church before about my struggle and a lot of my young adulthood with sexual sin. And I remember a couple years ago when I was working through some stuff in my family history, looking back at the generations previous to mine, and you know what I found? Sexual sin in the previous generation and the generation before that and the generation before that. Because this is the reality. Where we reject God's rule and reign, we tend to carry on sin. Our own sin. We embody it. We do it. It's our choices. Because we lack submission to the true king and his word. The reality is you and I inherit these realities from our forefathers and mothers, but because we continue to reject God's rule in our lives, we end up repeating them. And I can tell you this from my own experience. It was not until I came to the place of genuine, absolute surrender to God, to casting myself on his mercy and saying, I cannot do this. I need you. And whatever I've got to do in following you, help me, that I began to actually find freedom. And by God's grace, get to live and experience that freedom today. Daniel 5 is a warning to say, listen, if you remain unsubmitted, you're going to repeat the same things. And as you fall into those traps and continue to not submit to God's rule and reign, eventually they reach an end. And the passage ends strongly, but it ends in many ways as a warning to those that will not humble themselves before God, because it reminds ourselves that where we will not ultimately humble ourselves before the true king we will experience his justice and his judgment. Look what happens in verse 24. Then from his presence, the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, mene, mene, tekel, parsin. And this is the interpretation of the matter. So Daniel gives the interpretation. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. The word mene just means numbered or counted. Tekel, you have been weighed, right? That's the word for to weigh in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command. Daniel's clothed with purple and a chain of gold put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. But that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. 
The reality is while Belshazzar was feasting with these thousands, the Medes and Persians were outside the city, and that very night they snuck in through the moat and water wells into the city and overtook it in one night, and Belshazzar lost his life. And it's meant to be a warning that those who reject God's sovereignty, who harden their hearts against him, who blaspheme against him, who do not submit to the King Jesus, there will come a day where we will experience God's justice. God is patient and long-suffering. He desires our repentance. But where we fail to repent, at one point, we will be called to give account. And Scripture is clear on that. It does not shy away from that reality. The words that are spoken to King Belshazzar are spoken across anyone that will not bow their knee before the sovereign God. Because the truth is, for every single one of us, our days are numbered and counted. And there will come a day when we will have to stand before the holy creator and give an account for our lives. The author of Hebrews makes note that it is appointed to man once to die and then the judgment. You get this life, and at some point you are going to be called to give an account to whether you humbled yourself and submitted yourself to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, or whether you continued in your blasphemy to think that you knew better, that you were really God and you could reign your life more than him. And in that moment, each one of us will be called to weigh the reality of our life against God's law and standards. And brothers and sisters, the truth is, apart from Jesus Christ, just like King Belshazzar, we will be found wanting in that moment. The famous preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon gave a great illustration of this. He said, imagine for yourself standing before the divine scales of eternity. And imagine in that moment that I just put one command, just one command from God's law on one side of the scales. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The truth of the matter is, no matter how much you try to heap up of your life on the other side of that scale, no matter how much of your good works, your effort, your trying, your promises, your this or that, you will never, never balance those scales. All of us are found wanting in our life. None of us are able to achieve righteousness. None of us are able to live up to God's standards. Because we have turned from God and have rejected his ways. But the good news of the gospel is that God has made a way that when we trust in Jesus, he takes our sin and we receive his righteousness such that we're declared righteous and can receive and that he experienced God's justice and judgment. He drank the cup of God's wrath so that you and I would not have to. But the truth is, if we will not receive Christ, the ultimate atonement for our sins, then we will be divided. There will come a day where God will remove sin from the earth. And those that are opposed to his kingdom and his reign and have not bowed to him will experience the ultimate rejection and the ultimate justice. And that's severe. That's the warning of Daniel 5. It's trying to call to you across time, don't be like Belshazzar. Humble yourself before the true king. Bow your knee before Jesus and surrender yourself to him. 
Because to not do so is to experience a judgment and a division that I don't want anyone to experience. And yet so easily, I think we trifle with the reality of God, of who he is, his justice and holiness. And we fail to take seriously the call to repentance. But again, the author of Hebrews reminds us with strong words that I think we need to hear sometimes. He writes this in Hebrews 10. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth. Right, that's, that's not you messed up. That's I continue in unrepentant sin. I continue in areas of my life where I will defy God's word and God's ways because I know better. There is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Sometimes there's moments as a parent where I have to remind my kids of who their authority is. It's not often. But there's some times where they get a little snippy, a little talk-backy. And there's some times where I have to stop and I have to look them in the face and say, who do you think you're talking to? I am not one of your friends. I am not some mere other adult. I am your father. And there is a call for respect in who I am that you need to recognize. The truth of the matter is, in our world and culture, we trifle with ourselves with disrespect and disobedience. And too often we convince ourselves, well, it's no big deal. But sometimes all of us need a moment where God looks at us and he says, who do you think you're talking to? If you think that you can stand before the most holy, glorious being who imbibes all power, all reality, all knowledge, all everything, who made everything that you know and that you're going to stand before him and spit in his face by your defiance and not receive any judgment for you. You, my friend, walk in an arrogance that I fear for your soul because one day you will be humbled before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And the truth is, you have two options when it comes to the truth of who God is in his holiness. You will either bow your knee to him now and humble yourself before the king of kings, or one day you will be forced to when he brings his justice to bear on the earth. My heart is that you would experience the grace and mercy and love that God has for you and Jesus Christ. And the reason I'm so intense is because I love you. Because the worst thing in my mind as your friend and your pastor is that you would stand on the doors of eternity and experience God's judgment and rejection because you would not humble yourself now. But I have been a pastor long enough to know that there are men and women who sit in this room who trifle with God, who play with their sin, who act like he doesn't really matter, 
who play the game of religion, but in their heart have never bowed their knee to the King Jesus and truly surrendered their lives to him. And I think it's my duty and love to warn you that there is a day coming where you will find judgment. So turn now, repent, bow before him, and humble yourself. Because when you do, you will find his grace. James says it, Peter says it, God opposes the proud. And listen, you do not want to be on the opposite side of God. He wins every time. But he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to those who will confess their dependence on him, who will acknowledge their sin, cast themselves on what Christ has done for them, trust in his work, submit to his lordship, and by faith seek to live in obedience and alignment with his kingdom. Because when you humble yourself before the Lord, he will lift you up. And the call of Daniel 5 and my encouragement to us today is let us be a people of humility who humble ourselves before the true and living God. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.